So we'll begin our, our, uh, our time in God's Word by reading from God's Word in Isaiah chapter 7, looking at verses 10 through 17. I'll bring up our text on the screen, be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows, uh, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we're continuing our our celebration of the incarnation of Christ, and we are, we are this month taking the first stanza of the song, O Holy Night, as our theme. Last week, we established the necessity of, uh, of the incarnation through those words, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. The world has long been in sin and error, pining, uh, uh, pining for that which was lost and longing for the, the promised glory to come through the Messiah. And today we are reveling in the thrill of hope that comes into the world through the birth of Christ. But what is it that makes something thrilling? You know, when you think of a thriller, you think of an exciting novel, think of the Michael Jackson song. You think of, uh, you know, a suspenseful movie. But what is it something that makes something thrilling? It's got to be exciting. It's got to be something that is unexpected, something that, uh, especially in, in this context, delights those who behold it. And that's something this song says is a hope that thrills. But we need to be clear that Christian hope is not Uh, merely just working from a general concept of hope. It is very specific. Our society tends to think of hope and portray it as a general thing devoid of any real definition. It's just something good to have, like eating your vegetables and brushing your teeth. It is something that just makes things better to just have hope. But we recognize that not all hope is biblical. Not all hope is sound. Not all hope is reasonable. We could point to moments in our lives where a thing or or the person that we were hoping in failed us. But also we must recognize that not all hope is blind or empty hope. Christian hope is full. It is expectant because it's based upon promises made by God himself. 
And we are considering, considering this morning one of the most famous promises that God has made today in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And indeed, the hope that we find in that verse is thrilling, and all the more so once we consider the context in which that promise is made. For many do not know that the promise of Isaiah 7.14, which is quoted by the gospel writer Matthew in his gospel, was given to a faithless king after he had rejected an offer of hope given to him by God. And so first we will consider this morning the shocking rejection of hope, and then secondly the surprising sign of hope that God gives anyway. So let's. Uh, so we will look at each this morning. First, uh, we look. We consider the uh, the shocking rejection of hope in verses ten through twelve. Now, to order understand that, it would take too long to go into detail on it. But we need to understand why it is that God offers uh, King Ahaz a sign, and that comes in verses one through nine. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to give you a summary of it. But basically, the situation for uh, God's people is bleak. Uh, and when we talk about God's people, we talk about the southern, the southern nation of Judah. Because at this time, the, the nation has been divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom called Israel, which is always confusing. Uh, and then there's the southern kingdom called Judah. And Ahaz is the king of the south of Judah. Uh, the, the year is 734 B.C., and Assyria is on the rise, and, and they are threatening to take over everything. The northern kingdom, as I just mentioned, is called Israel. Uh, they, they want to partner with Syria. Another confusing thing is that there is Assyria at the time and another country called Syria. There's Syria and Assyria. They're not the same. And so, and so the northern kingdom wants, is partnering with Syria and wants Judah to join their alliance, whether or not Judah wants to. Uh, their plan, apparently, is to dethrone Ahaz and put their own puppet king in place and force Judah to join with them so they have this kind of triad of, of, of countries standing against uh, the Assyria as it threatens everybody. Ahaz, uh, for his part, seems to have determined to cooperate with Assyria in order to protect his, his reign from uh, the threats of, Assyri- of Israel and Syria. And those are, when he talks about those two nations you're afraid of, when you heard Isaiah talk about that, that's, he's talking about Israel and Syria. And so the, uh, so the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he confronts him, challenging him to cast off his trust in anybody, and whether it's Assyria or Israel or Syria, and to commit his way to the Lord. He tells him uh, that, that it, for a prophetic word from the Lord that Israel and Syria are going to fail in their, in their, in their desire to dethrone Ahaz. Uh, he doesn't need to worry about it. All Ahaz needs to do is trust the Lord. It is often the case in the Old Testament that when God makes his promises, he will often confirm those promises with a sign. And that is what Isaiah, that what God does through Isaiah, he, God offers Ahaz a sign in verses 10 and 11. This is why he offers a sign. And we learn a, a valuable lesson here. Now, we learn a valuable lesson that now God does not offer us signs today in this way. 
But we do learn a valuable lesson, though, uh, that should he, uh, when God offers you a sign personally, you take it. Okay? You could say God was offering him a sign he couldn't refuse. Uh, we, do, um, we do, as Christians, this side of the cross, this side of the New Testament, do believe uh, it, it, that God can and does work miracles. Uh, but we do um, believe that we also believe Christians are not commanded to go about looking for random signs. That it is actually not an act of faith to say, God, if you want me to do this, then, then make this happen. Then slide this cup across the table or something like that. Um, because if he does, then you'll just you'll, you'll, you'll scream poltergeist and say my house is haunted anyway. So, um, but as, uh, as, so we, so we, uh, as Christians on this side of the New Testament, we believe that the revelatory gifts have ended with the apostolic era. And that what has replaced them has, is the New Testament scriptures. And secondly, God specifically tells us not to put him to the test by asking for signs. I mean, when they did it with Jesus, he said, a perverse and faithless generation demand a sign. And, and, and like, there's a lot of Christians today that go, yeah, I'm going to do that. You know, it's like, no, Jesus said, don't do that. Okay. The Old Testament says, don't do that. But there is an exception. And the exception to that second reason that says, you know, generally speaking, God says, don't ask for signs. Don't, don't test me. But, God, but the exception is if God personally comes to someone and offers them a sign. And God is calling Ahaz by offering him a sign. He's calling him to faith. He's calling him to trust in this promise that he has just revealed to him through the prophet Isaiah. He knows it's a big ask. Ahaz is the smallest guy on the block right now. He is a king, and he's, doing, he's running the numbers, as any, as any rational king would do. He's weighing his options, and he realized that if he's going to survive the night, he's going to need a serious help, because they're the ones that can save him from being dethroned, unless God does something incredible, something miraculous, which God promises to do. God is demanding Ahaz to not live by sight, but to live by faith. And I think we can sympathize with Ahaz here a bit. Because he's saying, look, deny all your political instincts. All those instincts for self-preservation, repress those. Deny those and place your trust in the Lord. I think we can sympathize with Ahaz saying, that is a tall order. That is hard. Yet it is a demand that God has every right to make because he is able, because he has promised, and he's offering a sign. I'm going to do it. I'll prove to you that I'm going to do it. Ask me a sign, anything, right? In God's kindness, God offers Ahaz the pick of the litter when it comes to signs, right? He says, look, as deep as the grave, as high as heaven, you want to move some stars for you? You want, to, you, want to, you want to raise somebody from the dead? You name it, and I'll do it to confirm the promise. What does Ahaz do? He says, nah. No thanks, God. He does so in a very respectful manner. He does so. Um, and from Ahaz's response, we learn a very important uh, lesson which is that God desires faith more than pious words. Uh, 
Ahaz refuses God's offer of a sign with very pious language. On the surface, the language seems quite honorable. He says he's refusing to put the Lord to the test. And, and, and we'd say, okay, well, knowing what God has commanded, that, isn't he just saying, no, no, Lord, I will obey your word. I, you said not to put you to the test. I will not put you to the test. But the reason that God tells his people not to put him to the test is the same reason that Jesus stated in the Gospels. To demand a test, a sign from God, is to reveal a faithless and disobedient heart that refuses to take the promises of God seriously. But when God comes to an individual like Ahaz, offers to, makes him a promise and offers to give him a sign, and then he refuses the sign, What's odd is here that, that the refusing to ask for a sign is actually a sign of his lack of faith. Ahaz, in rejecting the sign that God offers, is rejecting the promise the sign represented and even the God who made it. It's interesting that as soon as he does this, Isaiah switches from saying your God to my God as if Ahaz has rejected the God of Israel. But, and further, to, to do this, to reject God's sign, to reject his promise using pious language, is, as one author put it, to do the devil's work, to use scripture and scriptural language to sin and to act faithlessly. Ahaz is putting his faith, not in the Lord, but in Assyria. That is where his trust is. And so this, and so this is like, this is one of those things that we have to, we, and we know how to do this, because there's even this rise of things called like, you know, evangelical Christianese, you know, they like to call it Christian, Christian language, we like to shroud, you know, and, and, and certain, certain faith traditions will talk about putting a hedge around something, a head, like a prayer hedge or something, they'll talk about, you know, they've got these like types of, those language that we use, you know, and, and I remember one time, um, one of my favorite examples of this, that, uh, uh, which uh, uh, which is uh, doesn't paint me in a very good light, but it's, uh, when I was being asked by someone to do something, and I just said, I, I I just I feel like the Lord's not leading me in that way. You heard that one? You're like, I used that last week, uh, and so you know, and 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 the guy I was doing it to, he was very shrewd. He goes, so what does that feel like? I go, feels like I don't want to do it. <laughs> He, he was like, well, maybe you should pray about that then and get back with me about whether or not you ought to do it, whether or not you feel like it. And I was like, fine, go do it. <laughs> it's all right. So, and so you know, but, uh, but you, know, you know that kind of language, right? How can I use the Lord to get me out of this thing I don't want to do, right? Now, just say no, all right? Just say no, right? Uh, we, can, we can be gracious and loving and forgiving and, you know, we're all adults. Let's just say yes and let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's not you know, couch things uh, in, in these kind of Christianese terms to try to get out of stuff. Um, it is true that God uses normal everyday means to accomplish his purposes, but we must not use the, the doctrine of means in God's providence to cover over our lack of faith in God's promises. Um, the Christ, because the Christian life is one of faith and repentance. It is one in which we are uh, we regularly, uh, and, and what I mean by that is just kind of like we 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 we're regularly called to reject worldly thinking, 
but we also live in a fallen world. It's not sinful to plan for your retirement, but it is sinful to put your hope in it, right? Uh, and, so, and so we must be, we must beware the error of Ahaz here. We must beware using pious sounding language to cover over disobedience to the commands of God, to paper over worldliness and faithlessness of our own hearts. So we have to really be, so watch out for the, the faithlessness of Ahaz. Uh, and, so, and so we have this kind of shocking rejection of hope that, is, that, that, that we see from Ahaz as he rejects the sign. But we, still, but we see in God's goodness the surprising sign of hope that he gives. So given what we've covered, we may, uh, it may be unexpected, but Isaiah proceeds to uh, declare what we might call the Lord's not-so-surprising judgment immediately on Ahaz. Um, since Ahaz re- uh, rejected uh, a sign that would have been a sign of hope, uh, God says, I will give you then, Ahaz, what will be for you immediately a sign of my judgment. The prophet rebukes the king for not, for, for, um, not, he's not rebuking Ahaz for wrestling with doubts or wrestling with the promises of God. I mean, Abraham did that. He said, you know, he's in, in Genesis 15, he said, but God, how will I know? You know, that, that what you promised is going to be true since, you know, my, my heir is, I don't have any kids and my heir is going to be the, my, the head servant of my household. How am I going to know that? And, and, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then after Abraham screwed it all up in Genesis, uh, using the, the, the Hagar approach, um, in, in Genesis 17, he comes and says, now I'm going to give you a new name and I'm going to give you a covenant sign, even though you don't ask, you didn't ask for it and you don't deserve it. All right. He, re- he rebukes Ahaz not because he's struggling. He rebukes Ahaz because he has rejected the promises of God and placed his trust in the world, specifically in Assyria. And so the, uh, the prophet, on behalf of the Lord, asks uh, Ahaz rhetorically if he is trying to wear God out. But again, note, it is here that, uh, that Isaiah switches from saying our God to my God, because... God doesn't seem to be the God of Ahaz anymore. He says that even though Ahaz has rejected uh, the sign that God was going to give him, God is going to give him a sign anyway, but the sign will be unto Ahaz a sign of judgment. Judgment because, he says, Israel and Assyria will be defeated very soon and they will no longer pose a threat. But a momentary uh, judgment for the kingdom of Judah is, is laid out here as well. It's laid out for the kingdom of Judah, for King Ahaz himself, and for the house of David. And indeed, the sign did not fail, nor did the promise of God's momentary judgment fail to fall. Syria actually came and was, fell to Assyria two years after this interchange between Isaiah and Ahaz. Ten years after that, the northern, the northern kingdom was invaded and exiled by Assyria. And 21 years after that, in 701 B.C., uh, Judah itself was attacked and devastated, even though it was not yet exiled or destroyed by Assyria. It, that would come in 586 B.C. with Babylon. And so there is a not-so-momentary immediate judgment that falls, But what is surprising is the sign that is given in verse 14. 
Isaiah declared the sign that God would give would be the virgin giving birth to a son. And further, that son would have a name. He would be called Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. It means that God is with his people to deliver them. God is with the remnant that it remains in Judah who follow him. And ultimately, God will be with his people through the child who would be born in the absolute fullest extent of this prophecy. The prophecy then would have a partial fulfillment in the days of Isaiah, but the true embodiment and fulfillment of the prophecy would come when the Virgin Mary would give birth to Jesus. Because here then would be God in the flesh, truly God with us, whose name is Jesus. Now some have tried to argue against a Christian interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 as quoted by Matthew in his gospel. This has been done by Jewish theologians who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, and it has been done by unbelievers and skeptics and liberal theologians. They argue that the Hebrew word uh, Alma that's used in Isaiah 7.14 uh, when translated as in the English as virgin doesn't technically mean virgin, uh, that there's a more specific word uh, here uh, that, that means that and that, is, uh, that, that there's truth there. Um, And so what they're saying is Isaiah wasn't making a prophecy about a a true virgin miracle. He was simply saying that a woman was going to have a child. Hardly anything to get worked up about. Now, one of the problems here is that while it is technically true that there is a more specific word that means virgin, uh, it doesn't doesn't, uh, mean that the word Isaiah uses doesn't include that as part of it. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses uh, means a young woman of marriageable age. Uh, in, that, in, 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 the, in the ancient world, that, that word would have automatically included the concept of virginity. To describe this woman as Isaiah does would be to say she is, quote, female, marriageable, and unmarried. And that would assume that she is also a virgin. But honestly, this is an example of people just going back and, and trying to change what they, uh, how they understood things uh, um, once Christianity came along. And I know that because the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called, which was not done by Christians, um, it called the Septuagint. And you look at how, to, so they take the, you have the Hebrew uh, form of Isaiah 714, then you have the Septuagint Greek translation of Isaiah 714, and what did these Jewish scholars, what Greek word did they use to translate this word that we're told doesn't mean virgin? They use a word in the Greek that technically means virgin. And, and further, the Old Testament prophecies here that are noted, uh, that, that, that we see in the Old Testament, they are, there are many Old Testament prophecies that are noted by what we call a kind of a double fulfillment. That is a partial fulfillment that comes in, comes in, comes in view and then a fuller fulfillment. This is, this, is a, this is a Jewish way of understanding prophecies. This is a, this is a true, uh, this is because uh, you think about the return of Israel. It was prophesied by the prophets. Well, then the return of Israel under Persia uh, the, the, oldest, the oldest who came back wept 
when they laid the foundation of the temple. Why? Because it was smaller than Solomon's and they knew it wasn't what Ezekiel had promised. And that the return was only partial. There was a greater fulfillment. When Jesus came on the scene, what was he asked all the time? Is it now? Is it now? Like we came back to the land, so that was part of it, but is, is the full fulfillment of the prophecy coming now? And Isaiah says no. And, Isaiah, and, and Jesus says no, not now. Right? And not in the way that you think. And so likewise, the prophecy here certainly has partial fulfillment through, a, through the birth of a child in Isaiah's time that was a sign of the, appending, the immediate judgment of God, but ultimately is the fulfillment of hope in Isaiah 7.14 as quoted and applied by the gospel writer Matthew. And this brings us to our last point here, which is that the thrill of hope for us for the world comes with a sign. The sign that is the child born of a virgin. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the writer narrates the birth of Christ by focusing on Joseph and his dream when the angel revealed to him the nature of this child that Mary was pregnant with. And he, and he affirms and assures Joseph that Mary indeed was uh, caused to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and that she is not adulterous. He doesn't need to divorce her. He needs to marry her. And further, you need to give this child a name. He doesn't say Emmanuel. He says you name him Jesus, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And, why, and the angel says specifically why you're to name him this. Because he will save his people from their sins. According to Matthew, all of this was to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. That the virgin would conceive and bear a son and they would name him Emmanuel. The sign of a child is the sign of salvation. That, that salvation has indeed come into the world and is real. You can have it for yourself. This child was born, and with him came the thrill of the hope of redemption. He lived, and he died, and he rose again, but not without giving us another sign. Another sign that we are about to partake of in the Lord's Supper. We're about to partake of the sign of the table that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, gave to us. Here is the sign of the purpose to which Jesus was born. He came into the world by a virgin that the Savior, fully God and fully man, would take upon himself the curse of his people and bring us eternal life. And so we come to the table today. We must ask ourselves, where is our hope? Is our hope in ourselves, in our possessions, our talents, in our politics? Is it in the world or is it in Christ? We are invited to come to the table as redeemed sinners with empty hands because we come to the table not with our hands full with all of our, uh, our, our rotten works to justify ourselves. We come to the table with all our imperfect our works with all their imperfections, but we lay them down as an offering that we may receive with empty hands the sign of God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ through the body and blood of His Son. 
Ahaz rejected the hope of God and he rejected the sign of that hope. What will we do today? Let us hope in God. Let us receive his merciful love afresh today. Let us look to the blessed sign of salvation in the child born to the Virgin Mary. But even more, let us receive the sign of salvation and the future glory of the kingdom in the Lord's Supper as a sign given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to reflect upon your grace and goodness, to reflect upon the significance of Christ's birth and salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we, as we, take, as we, uh, as we take of the supper. Lord, bless us as we, as we continue into this week. Uh, help us to meditate and wonder at the birth of Christ. May we glory in it. May we, may we be awestruck at your goodness to us. And Father, may we be comforted in our sorrows, strengthened in our afflictions, humbled in our blessings. And Father, we pray this in, your, your, in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand.